Hello and welcome to the Queen's Reading Room podcast, the place where we invite lovers of literature to share with us their bookish confessions. What are the titles they take down in moments of joy or sorrow? And what treasures might we find in their own reading rooms, whether that's a bedside bookstack or a full-scale library? This time we're joined by a magical mind, screenwriter and celebrated children's author, winner of the Carnegie Medal for his book Millions and the Guardian Prize for The Unforgotten Coat. He was also the mind and pen behind the 2012 Olympics opening ceremony. Dad to seven children and absolute Moomins obsessive, he was for Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee on the writing team behind that rather special sketch with Paddington Bear. I'm Vicky Perrin, Chief Executive of the Queen's Reading Room, and it's my pleasure to invite you into the reading room of... I'm Frank Otschel Boyce. ...to explore the books he simply couldn't live without. As a child, I was I was I had boyish reading habits. I liked to read uh, football league tables and books about animals. Facts. I liked facts, and I came to fiction quite late. I had this glorious thing happen to me that I was I was held back in year six. I did two years in year six, and I absolutely loved it. So when I was faced with the prospect of going to big school, I had a very very early. <laughs> I like 11 years old swamped with nostalgia and kind of wanted to hold on to my childhood. So suddenly started reading children's books that I should have already read. So that's when I read the Moomins and that, that was a kind of famished, ravenous swallowing of children's fiction. Then the first book I ever bought with my own money was almost certainly uh, ice, the ice by book of birds. These these books were like, I think they were sixpence or a shilling and you filled them in. Um, I completely lied. Um, and they were, they were wonderful books. They were very disposable and they were designed to get you to notice things and you got points. So there was the I Spy book of people, which, you know, you got fantastic numbers of points for recognising choir boys or, you know, extraordinary people. And I had the I Spy book of birds, which kind of arranged birds into a great kind of pyramid with sort of pigeons and sparrows at the bottom and ospreys at the top, or perhaps the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove at the top. <laughs> you got different points for each one. And I loved that. I, lo- I still got them. I held on to them. So they were the first books. They weren't fiction. I think the first fiction book I bought, which I've also still got, and it's literally in pieces, is Joan Aiken's Kingdom Under the Sea which was illustrated by Jan Pienkowski. And if anyone's seen that, it's absolutely extraordinary. It's got these beautiful, amazing, highly coloured backgrounds with silhouette figures in the foreground. And I genuinely thought the book itself had some kind of magic in it because even the font was beautiful. Everything about this book was beautiful. Well, I've got seven children, so there's quite a time spread. So when the younger ones were young i'd just become a children's author and they love to go to events with me and answer questions on my behalf um but no the older ones we read to them and that was the i think that was the daily chore that was fought over that everybody wanted um yeah and my wife usually won but we, we, that shared we, you know we would we would we would always know what was being read at bedtime and share it there was a lot of just william but lord of the rings as well i i read lord of the rings and that's quite 
that must have taken an era, although I did discover that if you read the first sentence of each paragraph and the last sentence of each paragraph, you haven't missed a lot. <laughs> but it was so joyful. And I love that you kind of create a shared culture by what by the shared reading. So you've got these references in common. There are books that you read for work. There are books that you read, you know, because you've got to review them or because you're looking for the, you're doing research. The books that you turn to for solace, there's, there's several books that I turn to for solace. One is the book of Job, which I never stop reading. And I, I don't really know why, because it's quite a defeatist thing. But it's just got this soaring, soaring poetry in the last bit of the book of Job where... You know, God is talking to Job and says, you know, who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the wound? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thickness, when I fixed it and set its doors and bars in place. I love that, you know, that the rhythm of it and the kind of quietism of it. The other book that are completely the opposite, but the other book that I read for solace is a small collection of short stories by Joan Aiken called A Small Pinch of Weather which are this, it is the book with the Armitage family stories in, and they're not very well known, but I think the Armitage family stories are like what people said about the first Velvet Underground LP, which is that only a thousand people bought it, but they all formed a band. <laughs> I think anyone who read the Armitage stories, they were, they're like a flint. That's like, like, like a spark. They're about this very suburban, quite posh family in a world of a very suburban world where magic just exists, but it's kind of an irritation. So no one's terribly excited about it. There's a great one where an, an uncle turns up to stay who is being followed by the Furies, and the Furies stand on the doorstep of the Armitage's house, and the uncle is too self-absorbed to notice them, but everybody else is very inconvenienced by the Furies standing on the doorstep, pointing at them, shouting, doom, doom, doom. <laughs> And I love that. I love, I've got a copy of it and just the smell of it is enough. Sometimes I just open it and smell it and put it back. The book that I would hate not to have access to is, I'm afraid it's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe because it just always works. It never, ever, it never becomes tired for me. The magic of that, the, uh, the magic of the first step into the snow through the back of a wardrobe I don't think that's ever been equaled in terms of its simple wonder and the despair that you feel at the death of Aslan and the joy of his return. They're just, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary achievement that I'm the witch in the wardrobe. I think we underestimate it. We've heard about the books that Frank goes back to time and again, but what about a book that has a truly special place in his heart? It might surprise you, but it has something to do with an uncle away at sea and a long-lost world. The book that's most precious to me is a copy of William IV, which is a William Brown book by Richmond Crompton. And this is a copy that belonged to my father, and it was given to him by his much older brother, who was away at sea. And he came back. I, I can still, I, I can picture this. I don't, it's so vivid to me. You know, he came back with his uniform and his big kit bag, and he gave my dad a copy of William the Fourth, And my dad's older brothers were all at sea. 
Um, they served in the Atlantic convoys in the Second World War. This was the first book that anyone gave my dad, and he he held on to it. He became a very bookish boy, went to night school, um, went to university when I was a, when I was young. He was a student when I was young, and became a teacher. So this book had an enormous effect on him. It was a door opening, and it's the reason. He didn't go to sea. And I think, to be honest, he always regretted that he didn't go to sea. Um, but it was obviously huge for me because it meant I had a dad because, you know, lads who went to sea, they they were away for months on end. You know, they didn't, those boys didn't really have fathers and I had a father. And I think it's sort of down to William the Fourth, which is still a really fresh and amazing read. And when I think about that, you know, that world in which my dad's brothers were at sea, that world's vanished. You know, they were serving in the Atlantic convoys against foreign empire that is gone, against a state, you know, um, a fascist state that's disappeared, in a way of life that's disappeared, in an area that's disappeared. Those flats near the docks in Liverpool, they've all gone now. But these books are still really fresh and amazing. And, um, William the Fourth is has got the kidnappers in it, which is, a, which is kind of they kidnap a a, a rich young girl, <laughs> who they then can't can't deal with. You know, Rich William's got this great line. He says, "We've kidnapped a kid, and we couldn't get any money for her, and we can't get rid of her because she falls in love with them, and they end up having to take her home." The kidnappers, the kidnappers walked in gloomy silence with the kidnapped child dancing along behind them, holding a hand each. I'm going wherever you go, she said. I love you. <laughs> Ginger said, you're a nice kidnapper. I can't help it, said William. It all went very different in the book because he's read this book about kidnappers. <laughs> Near the steps of the front door, a lady was standing. Ginger turned and fled at the sight of her. Lady Barbara, that's the child they've kidnapped, held William's hand fast. William hesitated. Flight was impossible. There you are, darling, said the lady. Dear nice boy, he's been playing with me all the time, said the little girl. And the other one, but he's gone now. I love him. May we keep him? <laughs> I love it that William's virtue and his niceness outdo his desire to be a bandit. <laughs> she sees through him. She sees he's a lovely boy, really. For those who are not familiar with Frank's brilliant book, The Wonder Brothers, he talks us through the incredibly moving story behind this uproarious tale and how it helped him rediscover the power of wonder. So I've just written a book called The Wonder Brothers, which is about three children who have a magic act in Blackpool and inadvertently end up in Las Vegas by mistake. And I loved reading books about magic and the history of magic. And of course, people are incredibly generous. So I wrote to lots of sort of working magicians. I had magic lessons. And it came about partly because when my mother was, my mother was very ill. And she also was looking after my father. And she was really burdened. And um, we threw a big birthday party for her in the back garden because it was during lockdown. And I got a magician to come and do some magic tricks for her. And I saw this woman who was carrying the cares of the world on her shoulders, just become a little child at these sort of close magic tricks, just, and the, it really brought home to me the power of wonder. And, you know, what is wonder? Wonder is a kind of joyful admission that you don't know everything. Because what people say when you've done a really good magic trick is, how did you do that? 
And we get so little chance to admit that we don't know something in life. So that was really, that's something I really thought about. And then my parents both, my parents died. They died within a few days of each other. My dad had been ill for a long time. My mother had really not been ill until just before. And so I was really sort of taken aback and I became sad, you know, which is fine and kind of lost the magic and thought, well, where do I look for magic? I'll look in magic. (laughs) So, so I went, I remembered that incident with my mom and read a lot about magic, learned some magic. um, And that was a great sort of preparation and learned that magic is very like writing. You know, magic has to tell a story Magic depends on misdirection, and the best misdirection is a story. Um, magic depends really heavily on preparation, you know, on making something that's actually really complicated look simple. And that the big lesson, I think, is that this is something that Robbie, the magician at my dad's party, my mum's party, said to me, the saddest thing in the world is a magician who doesn't believe in magic which is such a beautiful thing because magicians obviously don't believe in magic. They know how they're doing it. But if when they do it, they don't catch that moment of wonder themselves, then it's not going to work. So that lesson of like, well, like if a comedian doesn't find his own, his or her own jokes funny, then they're not going to be funny. So it was such a journey and it was really a wonderful, wonderful thing. And learned a lot about writing and a lot about how poetry works, how writing works from studying magic. So that's always like, I love the research part of things because exactly because of that, because by learning about other things, you always end up learning about writing. The books that I've written are about very different subjects. They're about space or saints or whatever. And I will really, really immerse myself in the research so that it, so that when I come to write the book, I don't have that temptation for it to, to sort of info dump and put bits of Wikipedia in there. I want to possess that knowledge. I don't want it to be something I've looked up. So I'll read a lot and I'll really, really immerse myself in it. Um, and But also when I'm writing a children's book, I will have a set of like really sort of great classic comedy books on hand, probably in the toilet, I have to say, just so that I can dip into them and remember what a really good sentence looks like. So it'll be Summer Lightning by P.G. Woodhouse, The Diary of Adrian Mole, and above all, The Peerless Three Men in a Boat. And I will always go get myself in the zone of being funny by reading these sort of classic comedies. I mean, there are so many reasons why a person should read, but especially why a child should read. I think from the point of view of a child reading and reading to your child, I think nothing builds the machinery of happiness, the mechanism of happiness inside yourself, like the stories that you read when you're a child. They point you towards the small pleasures. They tell you what's good about life. And they stay with you. They become part of your DNA. They become they become part of how you think. You know, how many decisions have you made based on the ugly duckling? <laughs> but as adults, I also think we should read especially fiction because we've, we've fallen into this digital world, which turns out to be full of information, but which 
all information becomes binary. So the important thing about any subject seems to be which side are you on, rather than the subject itself. What, you know, whether that's in international politics or personal politics or anything, everything seems to be falling into a kind of binary. And the only decision you make is whose side you're on. And only fiction can really deliver the complication of life, that, that the feeling that there's more, that not, not the argument that there's more, but that there's the feeling of nuance. The, fee the feeling that the bad person may have something good about them and the good person may have their dark side or that the situation may be complicated and it may not be that the, the solution is to back one horse or the other. Um, I think only fiction can enrich you in that way. And then the other thing I think is really, really important. I'm someone who makes films. I love films. I love games. But from the, and I love television, but from the inside, I can tell you that the only people whose voices are heard there are very confident people who can take a lot of criticism and who are comfortable and articulate in the room and sure of themselves. And those, those are a wonderful type of people and they're, they're people who've done amazing things in the world, but they're not all the voices in the world. And I think really in the end, only books capture all the voices. You could make a list of the 10 greatest books in the world and maybe half of them would be written by people who were literally in prison when they were writing them or who were completely dysfunctional and almost mad when they were writing them. You, you can't make those kind of... You can't, those people don't make films. They don't make television. They don't tell those kind of stories. Only books are open to all the voices and only by reading books will you hear all the voices. Here at the Queen's Reading Room, we believe that a great book can be enjoyed no matter how old you are. And so does the infinitely talented Sir Philip Pullman, whom we had the pleasure of interviewing a while back about his fantastic novel, The Secret Commonwealth. In this clip, Sir Philip explains how important it is to welcome readers of all ages. I don't define my writing because... These things shut out more readers than they welcome in. That's why I've never actually said my books are for young people. There was a, a move among publishers about 10 or 12 years ago to have sort of age range printed on all the books they publish. You know, these books are for 9 to 11-year-olds. We writers um, resisted this with some anger and some, and some energy because it seemed to us like turning away readers at the door, people who might enjoy your book, but who would be put off if they said it, if they saw it was labelled as for 9 to 11 and they happened to be 12 or 13. They felt that they'd be mocked for reading it. Well, that's a terrible idea. I don't, I don't like definitions of this sort. I know booksellers do because they want to know what shelf to put it on. Librarians do, likewise. Um, but... I've often noticed that children are less exclusive in their reading than grown-ups are. If you're a grown-up and you know you like, I don't know, let's say science fiction, um, you'll go straight to the science fiction shelf in the bookshop or the library and you'll look at those books, um, but you might not find yourself reading uh, fairy tales or historical fiction which is a pity because if you think you know what you like and that's it and that's all that matters, you're shutting out a great deal. Um, and I don't want to shut anything out or anyone out. So I don't really like to 
define my, my books. Anyone who wants to read is welcome. But once you stop thinking that you're grown up now and you can put a lot of childish things behind you, once you stop thinking that and realise that you're not grown up at all, part of you is still very young. But also they're tales for old people. They're tales that can be looked at and are looked at and are understood very differently by children than they are by grown-ups. If you're a child of seven or six or something and you hear the story of Little Red Riding Hood, uh, you, you, you understand that story very differently from the way you do if you're 30, 40, 50. And if you're a young child, you think, oh, I hope I hear this. I hope, we see, I hope she sees the wolf. It's going to be exciting. And if you're a parent, you think, what was she doing sending her child off into the woods like that? She must have been mad. So we, th we see these stories in very different ways. We never get tired of them, really. In each episode of this podcast, we put a question to the Queen about her own reading room. This time we asked Her Majesty, do you find books enjoyably nostalgic? Which books in particular take you back? Well, I think it was my father always read to us as children. And I just remember him. He had an extraordinary series of books which were called The Adventures of Brigadier Gerard. And they were about this officer in Napoleon's army, and they were gripping. We absolutely love these stories. And I, I think it takes me back to, you know, sitting up in bed as children, my father at the end, reading um, these exciting tales of Brigadier Gerard. Um, and then also, I think Morland Mousy was another great favourite because, you know, I loved ponies when I was young and we were always racing about on them. So every time I read Morland Mousy, it takes me straight back to when my sister and brother and I used to charge about on the downs in our youth. So I think those two, yes, they are very nostalgic. As we near the end of this episode, we also near the end of this first season of the Queen's Reading Room podcast. But watch out because we'll be dropping a bonus episode with word genius Susie Dent and we'll be returning with a new season very soon, packed full of brilliant minds and book recommendations. Just before we go, let's hear a favourite line of literature from one of our guardians of this nation's reading rooms, library assistant Rachel from St Anne's Library. And above all, Watch with glittering eyes the whole world around you, because the greatest secrets are always hidden in the most unlikely places. Those who don't believe in magic will never find it. From Billy and the Minpins by Roald Dahl. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Queen's Reading Room podcast. We're a charity on a mission to spread the joy of books and reading. You can find out more about what the Queen is reading and what she recommends by joining her book club on Instagram at the Queen's Reading Room or by checking out our website, thequeensreadingroom.co.uk for more fabulous literary treasures. 